So I've got a question for you. If you were God and you wanted to make yourself known to the human race, how would you do it? If you were God and you say, here is my creation, here, here are these humans that I love, but they don't know who I am. How would you go about revealing yourself? It's a tricky question, isn't it? I started thinking, well, you know, in today's day and age, you know, age of social media and TikTok and all that, yeah, perhaps you'd do some crazy video of you descending from the clouds and, you know, that the whole world can see. But then I know people say, oh, it's been doctored, it's, it's fake, it's photoshopped. Well, the wonderful thing is that God has already figured that out for us. He has figured out how to reveal himself to us. The question is, are we open to how he has revealed himself to us? And so for the, the past number of weeks, we've, we've been in a sermon series called Finding God. And if you've been walking through us with this sermon, you, you know that the basic theme is uh, the importance of seeking God. That actually, really, the most important purpose of our lives is, is to seek God, is to find God, to worship him, to serve him with all our hearts. We often think the purpose of our life is something different, maybe to make lots of money or to be successful in your career and all those kind of things. Nothing wrong with those, but they're not as important as finding, seeking, searching for God and then worshiping and serving him with all your heart. Because if we do this, we will actually find the satisfaction, the purpose and the hope in life that we all want, that we're all looking for, that we all desire. Focus of this series has also been to show that God wants to be found. Right? He, he wants to be found, which is why he has chosen a number of ways to reveal himself to us. And he's promised us that when we seek him with all our hearts, he will be found by us. One of the ways that we know that is that God has chosen to reveal himself to us in a number of ways, in a variety of ways. Last few weeks, right, we've been talking about how God has revealed himself through his creation. We've talked about how God is, is close to us. He's close to us, his, his creatures, his creations. We remember we use that term, his, his imminence, his closeness. That he wants a deeply personal relationship with each and every one of us. He's not an impersonal God. But at the same time, we also, last week, we talked about God's transcendence, right? The fact that while God is a personal God who is very much involved in our lives and his creation, there's also an aspect of God that is over and above and beyond us. Because he's God. Yeah, God is, he's different to us. God has an, an, an otherness to him as the creator and sustainer of of the universe. So we know God has, has revealed himself to us through his creation. And as I'd like to characterize it, God's fingerprints are all over his creation. If we're, if we're looking, we can see snippets of God's, who he is, all, all over the beauty of creation. Now we call this way that God has revealed himself to us <clears throat> general or natural revelation. God's general revelation, his natural revelation, what can be known about God through the natural world. But 
God has also chosen to reveal himself to us in a more unique and special ways as well. One of the main ways that he has done that is through the Bible. What is it about this book? I mean, we've got dozens and dozens of them in the pews, haven't we? Most likely, most of you probably own at least one Bible. What's so special about this book? I mean, it's just a book, right? Or is it? Why has this book changed and transformed more lives than any other in the history of humanity? Why is it the best-selling book of all time? Still today, it dwarfs any other book sales, year after year. Want to know how many copies of the Bible have been sold throughout history? Well, the Guinness Book of Records estimates that between 5 to 7 billion copies of the Bible have been sold. You familiar with the Gideon's ministry? Remember, there used to be a Gideon's Bible in every hotel drawer. Well, the Gideon's ministry alone has gifted over 2 billion copies of the Bible. Amazing. Now, to give you some context to that, do you know, anybody have an idea, what, are, what do you think might be the, the second best-selling book in history? Throw a few titles out. What's that? The Guinness Book of Records. Book of Records. <laughs> no, it doesn't have its own record in there. <laughs> well, the second best-selling book in the world is... Um, it's called Quotations from Chairman Mao Zedong. Also known as the Little Red Book. Yeah, the Little Red Book. And um, that has sold 1.1 billion copies, it's estimated. Now, admittedly, they got a little bit of a captive audience there, right? <laughs> but even so, 1.1 billion versus 5 to 7 billion. The Bible still dwarfs it. In sales and how many hands the Bible have fallen into. Third place, best selling book is the Quran. And that is a measly 800 million. It's not even in the billions. And a distant fourth, Lord of the Rings. 155 million copies. Seven billion versus a hundred, sorry, seven billion, yeah, versus 155 million. What is it about this book? The complete Bible, the entire Bible, has been translated into over 600 languages. And parts of the Bible, so maybe like the New Testament and the Psalms or something like that, have been translated into over 2,900 languages. I didn't even know there was 2,900 languages in the world. I mean, I consider myself bilingual. I speak English and American. But Bibles, they, they've been distributed over every continent in the world. It's the world's most popular book, and yet it's also the most persecuted and banned book in history. Do you know that it's illegal to own a Bible in approximately 52 countries today? In 2022, 
There are 52, probably more countries, that it is illegal to own a Bible. And the punishment for owning one range from imprisonment to death. What is it about this book? Why are so many inspired by it and yet countless others are threatened by it? What is the Bible? Now, there's no way in one sermon, in one message, that I can come close to explaining and describing all that the Bible is. That would need a sermon series of itself, and then the series would need another series, and it just... But what I would like to do today, because there's so many angles I could have taken today's message from, you know, in terms of, like, how did we get the Bible? How do we have the books we have? No, what we're going to do is we're going to outline some of the basics of what the Bible is, how we view it, and why it's important to our lives. So what is the Bible? Well, some people have jokingly suggested that the word Bible is actually an acronym that stands for Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. I mean, it's not wrong. <laughs> but actually, the word Bible, it's, it's derived from the, uh, the Greek word tabiblia, which means the books. The books. And that's, on one level, what the Bible is. It's, it's a collection of 66 books that have been divinely inspired by God. And these books were written over a span of approximately 1,500 years. There are over 40 authors that God spoke through who wrote these books of the Bible. And these authors, they came from all kinds of backgrounds. Right? They were, we, we've got fishermen, tax collectors, doctors, peasants. We've got kings. God used them all to, to communicate his word to us, to reveal himself to us. It's written in three languages. The original languages of the Bible are Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. So, you know, often you'll hear me in a sermon say, well, if we look at the original Greek word here is blah, blah, blah. That's because I'm going back to the original language that scripture was written in. It's divided into two main sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Testament is another word for covenant or promise. The Old Testament has 39 books, which we can loosely break down into three sections. The law, which is the law of Moses. That's like the, the first five books. The prophets. So we have all these writings by the prophets, like prophet Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. And then we have what's called the writings, which is kind of everything else that's lumped um, into the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we have 27 books. And that includes the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which give us the, the life of Jesus, essentially. And then we have letters by various apostles and uh, a few other books that are like the book of Revelation. Now, along with a, a diversity of human authors, the Bible also uses lots of different literary styles or genres. It's an incredible book because there's all these different kinds of literary styles in it. I mean, you know, if you think about it, we've got historical narratives. We've got national chronicles. We've got sermons. We've got letters. We've got songs. We've got poetry. We've got parables. We've got architectural designs. We've got travel diaries, we've got inventories, we've got geographical surveys, we've got eyewitness accounts, family trees, population statistics, biographies, and legal documents, all in this one book. 
I love to tell people that I take the Bible literally. You ever heard somebody say that? I take the Bible, I read the Bible literally, and I do. Because I believe it's the inspired word of God, and I read it literally. What I mean by that is when I read the Bible, it's important to know what kind of genres you're reading. And that depends on the book, or even a section of the book, that you're reading. So for example, I'm not going to read and interpret the Psalms, which are Hebrew poetry, the same way I would read the book of First Kings, which is historical narrative. So I know, for example, if it mentions something in the Psalms along the lines of the, the, the four corners of the earth, I know that's not a literal description of the earth. We know the earth doesn't have corners. Because I know the author's using poetic license. But if I'm reading something from First Kings and it talks about uh, the life of a king and what went on, then I understand that is real history. That really happened because the, the Bible is a history book. Do, do you know that uh, archaeologists in the Middle East, you know one of the books they use when searching is the Bible? Because it's a historical document. And there is tons of archaeological evidence that supports what we read in the Bible. I had a a professor in, in seminary, and um, <clears throat> he had, a, you know, he had the, um, the projector screen up, and he said, I'd, like, I'd now like to pull up for you all the archaeological evidence that disproves the Bible. And he turned his screen on, and it was just a blank screen. He said, that's it. Because what happens is the more and more they discover, the more it actually um, affirms what's already written in the Bible. But I read it literally, and we all should. We have to understand, okay, what genre is this? Right? I, would, I would not read the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, which uh, uses a style of Jewish ap- uh, apocalyptic, which is a very distinct literary style. I'm not going to read that the same way I'm going to read the book of Proverbs, which is wisdom literature. So we have to understand what we're reading to understand it the way God intended and so you've got all these, all these varieties within this one book. And, you know, it, 40 different authors, multiple literary genres, written over a span of 1,500 years. And here is the amazing thing. It has one overarching, amazingly cohesive story. From Genesis, the first book, right through to Revelation, the last book of the Bible. It has one unifying voice throughout it. It's the voice of God. When you think about it, it is stunning, the level of unity and consistency we see through the whole Bible. No other book exists like it. No other book has been written over such a, a span of time and has this consistent unity. And the only explanation for that is because behind the whole Bible, there is a divine author. A divine composer. I meant to bring in this one and I forgot to bring it in, but it's a couple of volumes of the Beethoven piano sonatas. Beethoven wrote, I think it was 32 piano sonatas in his life, and they are uh, masterpieces of piano music literature. But those two books of music, if you look at them, they are full of a variety of different pieces. Pieces with different tempos, different harmonies, different melodies. 
32 different pieces and within those other pieces, each has their own character and their own design. And yet, there's one very distinct voice and style throughout all of the music. As varied as the music is, anybody who knows Beethoven can listen to a snippet of this or that and be like, ah, that's Beethoven. Because it has a specific voice to it. And so it is with scripture. It doesn't matter where you are in the Bible, which book you're reading. It has a specific voice to it, which is the voice of God. You could say just like creation has God's fingerprints all over it, so does the Bible. It has God's fingerprints all over it. In fact, the Bible is is described as a living book. Because the power of the Holy Spirit. Spirit flows through it. Have you ever experienced that? Um, If you're familiar with reading the Bible, you may have read a passage 20 times in the past. And then one day you'll come to it and you read it again, the same passage, and all of a sudden it comes alive. It's the Holy Spirit illuminating it, speaking to you. It's a living book. It never gets old. How many times you read it? Because it always speaks to us. Our passage, uh, our scripture passage this morning from 2 Timothy, verse 3, it tells us in verse 16 that all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture, not just little bits of it, not, not the bits I like, as opposed to the bits I don't like. All scripture is God-breathed. In other words, it comes from and is inspired by the Spirit of God. Just like God spoke creation into being, remember? Right at the beginning of Genesis, what does God say? God says, let there be light. God speaks creation into being. What do we use when we speak, amongst other things? Breath. God spoke creation into being. He also spoke his word into existence through the human authors that that penned the Bible. So what's the Bible about? Anybody read it? If you ask that question, actually, in any church, there won't be many who actually say they've read the whole thing. And that's okay. You're you're not alone. But what's it about? Well, I mentioned the Bible. It has one overarching, amazingly cohesive story. And the first thing we have to realize is that the Bible is not primarily about us. It's not all about us. No, it's about God. The Bible is an amazing way that God has chosen to reveal himself to us. Yes, there's, there's plenty in there about us and, and our human nature. But ultimately, the Bible's central character is God. And God has chosen to reveal himself to us through a story. Remember, I asked you at the beginning this one. If you were God, how would you reveal yourself? Well, God, one way he has chosen to reveal himself to us is through a story. It's a true story. And it's the greatest story ever told. When you look at this story, essentially it has four major chapters to it. Creation, fall, Redemption, consummation. Let me say those again. Chapter one, creation. Chapter two, the fall. Chapter three, 
redemption, and chapter 4, consummation. Let's look at those real briefly. The biblical story begins with creation, and it tells us that God existed before all things, that he's above all things, and that he created all things. And we're told that, that we, human beings, humanity, was God's crowning glory. We are made in his image, and that God made us to worship him, and to have fellowship with him, and to, to enjoy the sheer beauty and joy and pleasure of his company forever. That's why God created us in a nutshell. The second chapter of the Bible, the biblical story, is where it takes a downturn. Because it tells that man and woman, the representatives of humanity, the progenitors of humanity, desired to be like God. They started to misunderstand their place, that we are the creatures and God is the creator. And so they disobeyed God. They wanted to be independent of his authority. They wanted to be like God, knowing good and evil. And the result, the consequence, is what we call the fall. It's a fall from grace, a fall from perfect relationship with God for which we were created. There's a great book called uh, How to Read the Bible Book by Book. Uh, it's, a great, it's a great resource to get if you're not sure where to start with the Bible. But it's by uh, two uh, seminary professors called Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. And in that book, they say that there are three main consequences or repercussions to the fall. Us disobeying God. So firstly, we lost our vision of God. So in other words, we started to have a distorted view of God's nature and his character. And isn't that true, right? We, all of us, myself included, we all have messed up views of God. All of us. We misunderstand his character. We misunderstand his goodness. We, we, we have a, a twisted, distorted view of God. And why is that? Because what we're doing is we're projecting our own fallenness onto God. We're, we're guilty and hostile towards God by nature. And so what happens is we project that onto God. We start asking questions like, well, why have you made me this way? Why are you so cruel? If you're so good, God, why do you let these things happen? Why do you let hurricanes happen? Why did you let my mom die? Why did you let, you know, we, we start questioning God's character, don't we? Blaming things on him. And it's because we are projecting our own distortion of God onto God. And that's because of the fall. The second consequence of the fall is, so we distort who God is, but we also distort and twist the divine image in ourselves. So we distort and twist actually who we are and who we were truly made to be in God. Remember, we are, we are creating God's image. We're supposed to reflect God by being loving and generous and giving and merciful and forgiving. But also often, don't we find ourselves being the very opposite of that? How often are we, instead, we're, we're hateful, we're stingy, we're merciless, we're vindictive. And we can be so unforgiving, can't we? So we distort who God is, we distort who we are in God. And then the third consequence of the fall is that we 
we lost our relationship and fellowship with God. We are we're ostracized from God because of that. And you, and you know what? That's, that's why for many people deep down, they're lonely and they're broken. People often talk about an epidemic of loneliness sweeping across us, right? And interestingly, especially among men, young men. People are lonely, they're broken. And it's because deep down, they've been separated from the one true relationship that really matters, which is a relationship with God. So that could have been the end of the story. Glad you came this morning. That could have been the end of the story, couldn't it? God created us, we rebelled, and so he left us for dead. Could have done that, God, and he he would have been justified as well, that's the thing. That wouldn't have been wrong of God to do that. He would have been justified. But guess what? He couldn't leave it there. Couldn't. You know why? Love. Love. Despite all the things we do against God, despite our rebellion, despite essentially stabbing God in the back, God loves us. He loves us. He loves you and you and me. He loves us. He loves his creation. So now the question becomes how to get through to us. How to break through our stubborn little hearts. How to get through all the fog and the confusion and the barriers that we have put up against God. How does God get us to see that he is really for us, not against us? Do you know that? God is for you. He's not against you. So many times I come across people who say, you know, I think, you know, God's out to get me. God's punishing me for this. Must be something I've done and he's he's angry at me. He's mad at me. God is for you. So what does he do? The Bible tells us he makes a covenant with Abraham. You're familiar with Abraham? He makes a covenant with Abraham that promises to bless all the people of the earth through him. And then he grooms a holy nation, Israel, that have to be set aside from the nations from whom the Messiah, the Savior of the world will come. But it gets better. And a friend used to say that all the time. He'd be telling you a story. But wait, it gets better. It gets better because God is the one who does it himself. He becomes one of us through Jesus to bring redemption to the world. A quote from that book I just mentioned before, they say it like this, here is the heart of the story. A loving, redeeming God in his incarnation restored our lost vision of God. Took off the wraps, as it were, so that we can plainly see what God is truly like. By his crucifixion and resurrection made possible our being restored to the image of God and through the gift of the Spirit became present with us in constant fellowship. Marvelous, well-nigh incredible, that revelation, that redemption. So what they're saying there basically is that through Jesus, God showed us 
what he's really like. That through Jesus, he has shown us what it looks like to be restored to the image of God, what it looks like to be truly human. And that through Jesus, we can be reunited with God's presence and have fellowship with God through the Holy Spirit. That was chapter three, redemption. The last chapter, big chapter of the Bible is consummation. And it's a promise that God is going to make all things right. He's going to make all things new. This is, this is when Jesus will return. And I think the most beautiful passage in the Bible that sums this up is from Revelation. It's chapter 21. And I just want to read it to you. It's verses 1 through 5, Revelation 21. It just paints a beautiful picture of what that's going to look like. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. He's going to make everything new. Everything that you're struggling with right now, be it a physical problem, an emotional, a a spiritual problem, he's going to make all things new. So that in a nutshell is, is God's grand story. The grand narrative of, of redemption. And within this book, there are answers to Many of life's big questions. Who am I? Where did I come from? Why am I here? Is there a God? Is this life all there is? What happens when I die? They're all answered here. And these words are trustworthy and true. This book will give you meaning and purpose because it reveals the God who created us all for meaning and purpose. So with all that in mind, do you think it might be worth reading? Do you think it might be worth reading? When we have people in 52 countries plus over the across the world who could be put in prison or killed for reading this book. And we here in the comfortable West are, oh, there's, there's enough time to read, you know, I, just, I don't really get it. You see, other than Jesus, the, the Bible is probably, it is, the most important way that God has revealed himself to us, right? So if you're truly interested in seeking God, in in seeking and searching for God, for finding God, then reading the Bible, it's not optional. It's essential. So real briefly, we're almost done, folks. Why 
Why should we read the Bible? Well, in our scripture again from 2 Timothy 3 today, we're told in verse 15 that the Holy Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. So, very simply put, the Bible is where we learn about Jesus. Who he is, and that he is the source of our salvation, the only source of our salvation. And I know that, it, you know, if, if you're someone who doesn't really read the Bible a lot, maybe you've never never read it other than perhaps what you see at church, I know that it, it can be sort of pretty intimidating to think about reading this because it's a big book. But even if you like to read, it's a big book. And so it can be intimidating. You, you can be asking, well, I don't, I don't know where to start. Do I just start at the beginning? Or, you know, what do I do here? Well, here's, here's my suggestion for you. Start with one of the Gospels. And this goes for this goes for if you're a new Christian or you're not even a Christian, but you're wondering, you're seeking. This also goes for any of us here today or at home who've maybe read the Bible a thousand times and are deeply invested in this. This is still good advice because it never gets old. Start with one of the Gospels in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They're all great. They're all amazing. But start with one of those and just start reading through it. You set your pace. It's not a competition. Maybe you read a chapter a day if that's all you can handle. But when you do that, trust that the Holy Spirit's going to speak to you because this is a living book and it has God's Spirit all over it. So we read it because it tells us about Jesus and Jesus is our salvation. Why else should you read the Bible? Well, verses 16 and 17, they give us great reasons. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the Bible teaches us about God and who he is. But it's also useful for rebuking and correcting So in other words, the Bible shows us what is wrong in God's eyes. It shows us the difference between good and evil, what is right and what is wrong. It shows us what is sinful and what is opposed to God's will. In the Bible, it's useful for training in righteousness. So through the study of this amazing book, it can also teach and train us the ways of God. To be loving to be kind, to be compassionate. It teaches us how to pray. It teaches us the components of spiritual warfare. And it teaches us to be more holy like God. And what's all this training for? What are we being trained for? To be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Do you know that God has created each and every one of you for good works? Good works. That's what he wants you to do in your life is good works. And he's created us with purpose for that. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. He's already laid them out. Before he even created you, he already knew the good works that he had prepared for you to do. Good works are waiting for each and every one of you to do. The only question is, will you be open and obedient to God because if you do that the good works will follow but often we take things into our own hands and I don't want to do that I'm going to do my work and lastly I would say that the Bible 
Another reason to read it is it's an anchor in a crazy world. Anybody feel the world's a little crazy right now? Yeah. Very crazy. Biggest dose of common sense you'll ever get. It's an anchor. It grounds us in reality. It tells us what is true and what is not. In a world that denies there's such a thing as truth, this tells you there is truth. And it's to be found in Jesus. So as we conclude here, the Bible is it's important and essential to our faith because God has revealed himself to us through his written word. And so if we're serious, remember what the theme of our, of our sermon series is here, finding, seeking God. If we're serious about seeking God, the Bible is a non-negotiable. It's essential that we read it for ourselves and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us. If we do that and we are faithful to study and read his word, he will speak to you and reveal himself to you. And I'd just like to throw this out as uh, before we celebrate communion, that, you know, if you're, if you're new to this, you're new to the Bible, and you, you want some resources about, well, how do I do this? How do I, how do I get into this thing? Or maybe you say, I'm not really a reader. Guess what? There are apps that will read the Bible for you. There are all kinds of ways that you can interact with this book. Uh, so if, if you have any questions on that, please talk to me after the service, and I'll, I'll be happy to help you out.